We are in the condition we are in, in the state of ignorance we are in, in the state of war, in the state of economic depression, in the state of depletion of the resources of our planet because of the greed of psychopaths who thought they could create their own reality. Well, look at the reality they created. You're listening to Stop Talk Radio, the world for people who think. Talk radio. <laughs> that, that tune still gives me the crease. It does. I'm uh, Angel Quinn. Uh, with me this week, as usual, my co hosts are Neil Bradley. Hi, everyone. Uh, Pierre Lascaudron. Hello. And by special request this week, we have Lorna Yetchik as well. Uh, say hello, Laura. Oh, hi. Say hi, Laura. <laughs> hi, Laura. <laughs> um, but our show this week is the title is Mysterious Planet Interview with UFOlogist and Cryptozoologist Nick Redfern. Nick is a freelance writer for numerous UK newspapers. Was. Uh, oh, sorry, was from 1984 until 2001. But in recent years, uh, Nick has, I suppose, turned his attention more uh, specifically to all things paranormal. Um, he has made many TV appearances in the UK and overseas, sharing his research and insights into all things Fortean. Today, he runs the US branch of the Center for Fortean, Tech, uh, Fortean Zoology. And he also has a blog, which you can uh, Google. It's nickredfern14.blogspot.com. Uh, Nick has written an awful lot of books, so maybe I'll just go straight into that. Uh, welcome to the show, Nick. Hey, guys. How's it going? Excellent. Welcome. Um, Nick, I was just going to say, you have written a lot of books. I was checking out your um, your Amazon page, and mm-hmm. it just kept going and going and going. Yeah. And, uh, I mean, there's maybe 15 or more books on this this kind of broad topic, and then other many other books that you kind of co-authored with other uh, big names in the in the kind of field of the paranormal, ufology, cryptozoology. So, um, I suppose my kind of standard first question is how or why did you get into this topic, and why has it consumed so much of your time and life these days? Um. Well, I actually balance it out so it doesn't consume all, <laughs> all my time. Okay. Um, I sort of like to have a, a life away from it all as well. But uh, it, when I was about six years old, uh, my mum and dad took me on a week's holiday to Scotland and we spent a day at Loch Ness. And my dad told me the story of the Loch Ness Monster. And, of course, when you're sort of five, six years old, it's more like you know a story about monsters in the wardrobe or something that's how you kind of look at it just like a mm-hmm. exciting story but then when i um sort of got 13 14 i began reading the books by people like um brad steiger john keel um a lot of the people who were sort of popular in the 70s in the paranormal writing field and um so that was sort of what got me interested in in reading and investigating and actually just having an interest in these subjects but how i got involved in writing um when, when i was at school i wasn't i wasn't the best student by any means i you know i left with barely a qualification no uh, no college no university and uh, i got a job on one of the old what they used to call in england the youth opportunity programs the yops and that was mm-hmm. actually like a, a short thing on a, a local magazine in the area i was living at the time but after like a year it ended 
and this was sort of the height of the Thatcher recession and everything. I just couldn't get anything else in that field, and although I'd enjoyed it. And for about the next 10 years, I worked variously as a painter, decorator, um, van driver, forklift driver. That was I did that for like eight, ten years. Um, I used to work as a forklift driver in a, in a paint warehouse. Um, then what I got to... Um, but I had an interest in writing and, and reading all through that period, and I, and I did a few freelance things here and there, but I said my main job throughout the 80s and, and early to mid-90s was, was forklift driving. I just did the, the other stuff, on, like the magazine and British newspaper stuff on the side. But then I thought, um, when I got to sort of about 1994, something like that, I thought, well, why don't I give it a chance, see if I could write full-time? And so that's what I did. I took a chance. I actually quit my job that I got at the time and thought, well, it's going to work or it's not going to work. But <laughs> one way or another, I'm going to find out. Mm-hmm. And so that's what I did and uh, started gambling on writing a book that I gambled and hoped would sell. And, and it did. And then that sort of opened up doors for other books and magazine work and sort of kind of went from there then. Huh. Uh, okay, have you, well that certainly sounds like a fairly, I think it's a suitably uh, kind of innocuous background to have for, for someone who's delving into these <laughs> these topics. Cause well, it can be you know, I mean, well, can people think I only thing, live some weird Fox Mulder life. I, you know, I don't, <laughs> I write books, but, you know, but I'm not sort of running around underground bases getting shot, shot at by the men in black or whatever, you know. Yeah, it's exactly. A, <clears> I take like a journalistic them. approach to what I do. Yeah. But I don't, you know, I then have a regular life away from it all, so. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, because some of the, I mean, in just in your most recent book, um, Close Encounters of the Fatal Kind, uh, Suspicious Deaths, Mysterious Murders, and Bizarre Disappearances in UFO History, there's a lot of very dangerous stuff going on in there, and it's, it's life and death stuff. So, But that was, my question was, apart from writing, have you engaged in any kind of field work, so to say? Oh, yeah, I do. Um not so much in UFOs. Um, I tend to, when it comes to the UFO subject, I tend to write more about the whole historical aspect of the subject and government files, that sort of thing. I'm not mm-hmm. someone who goes out and, you know, interviews abductees and contactees right. and, you know, takes soil samples at landing sites. No, I don't do anything like that. But okay. I do, the field work I do is in, um, with cryptozoology. That's my sort of main interest. Cryptozoology being the study of unknown animals and so yeah I do a lot of sort of expeditions around the world um, investigating you know lake monsters Bigfoot that kind of thing that's sort of my main area but you know with UFOs there are so many different angles you can follow so that's why I tend to focus on sort of the government files angle rather mm-hmm. than sort of spreading yourself too far and wide and you know investigating crop circles or abductions and you know um, Mm-hmm. banging on people's doors and interviewing them. No, I just kind mm-hmm. of focus on the historical government and military side of things. And in terms of um, UFOs and cryptozoology, you know, investigation or study of strange and mysterious creatures, is there a, a connection between those two that you have, have found? Yeah, well, I mean, I think there is, but a lot of people in the UFO field don't, and that's the same with people in cryptozoology, but I mean... You know, I don't care if they agree with me or not. That's that's, that's beside the point. Um, but, um, yeah, I mean, you often find that where people see Bigfoot, for example, there are often UFO encounters and people see strange balls of light 
flitting around where Bigfoot's seen. And, and mm. most mainstream cryptozoologists don't want to touch these cases. They think they're too far out, so they just dismiss them as like hoaxes or misidentification. And by the same token, people in the UFO field feel that bringing Bigfoot into their subject kind of makes it seem ridiculous. So they ignore these cases, and, and that's the problem we have, is that I think a lot of these phenomena are all somehow interconnected. But when it comes to investigating them, because so many people just don't want to touch these weirder aspects, many of the cases just get sort of forgotten or lost, or people just file them away and don't tell anyone, um, which, mm. which I've never really got, because that kind of makes it more into like a a belief system where people want it to be this or they want it to be that, rather than just looking at all the evidence. Nick, okay. uh, did you ever come to an hypothesis explaining why Bigfoots and uh, UFOs are sighted in, uh, in some places? Well, one of the things I found, and this is why it does get controversial, is there are a lot of reports where Bigfoot type creatures, are, this is all around the world, not just in the US, have reportedly sort of vanished in a flash of light or faded away or just literally sort of winked out of existence. Mm. And this has sort of given rise to the idea that they're almost like an interdimensional type creature. And that's why we never really catch one, because for the most part, they're not here. And so that this sort of ties in with, well, what if the UFO phenomenon is interdimensional? In other words, perhaps all these phenomena kind of flit in and out of our reality rather than, you know, being um, sort of uh, con like continuous entities here all the time, that they actually mm. sort of come in and out of our reality. And things like quantum physics are today allowing for the existence of, like, multi-dimensions. And so for that reason, uh, I think that's what Bigfoot could be, something that's it's so elusive because, you know, people say, why is it so elusive? Well, it's because it's not here all the while. These creatures, I think, do have the ability to come in and out of our reality. And if the UFO phenomenon is doing the same, they might actually even have the same point of origin. But as I said, when you tell that to a lot of mainstream cryptozoologists, they just roll their eyes and don't want to know. And, and that's why not much progress gets done in that area, because everybody's saying, no, it, it just can't be, you know. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, it just remains on the weird shelf. Yeah, exactly. Well, it is, yeah, even I have to admit it's weird. <laughs> yeah, I find that really obtuse, actually. If any, anybody who's looked at the actual literature or the the, mm. the, the recordings or the, of, of Bigfoot experiences or encounters, I mean, it's so close to the, the UFO phenomenon, phenomenon in nature, you know, like you just said, that I can't understand why anybody would want to keep them separated. I mean... The idea of like trying to hunt down Bigfoot and find him as 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 the missing link or something is just kind of ridiculous when you look at the actual uh, uh, eyewitness or testimony or the experiences people have had uh, of Bigfoot type creatures. You know. Yeah, you're right. It's kind of like when you see all these Bigfoot shows. You know, they go out in their sort of camouflage clothing and whatever, in night scope equipment and guns. Well, yeah, that's fine if you're going after like a a gorilla in Africa oh, or a mountain yeah. lion or a bear, but a creature that is sort of, which I, you know, I do believe Bigfoot as a, you know, as a phenomenon exists. But if you're dealing with something that is sort of semi-paranormal, semi-flesh flesh and blood and flits in and out of our reality, 
going after it with guns and night vision equipment and heat seeking equipment, you know, it's never ever worked. And people, mm-hmm. and what amazes me is that the Bigfoot community just can continue to think it's just down to bad luck. Where after a while, though, you've got to realise that there's a pattern where something more is going on, or something less, <laughs> paradoxically, in terms of what these things are and how they can avoid us with like a 100% success rate 100% of the time. No other animal does that. You know, most people never see a grizzly bear in the wild, but people do, and occasionally they get hit by cars and they get killed, or they get captured and put in a zoo. Bigfoot always eludes us, and, and there's, you know, no animal should be capable of that, certainly not like an eight-foot-tall ape living in the United States. <laughs> you know, that's, that's just ridiculous that a country the size of the U.S. and as technologically advanced, we can't find and capture even just one eight-foot ape. Mm. You know, it, just, it just doesn't make sense unless you look at it from that kind of other perspective. I have a little anecdote on that, uh, you know, just quick background, I spent many years as a hypnotherapist and it wasn't until the early 90s when you were driving the forklift that I actually got sucked into the whole UFO thing with the uh, the first of several uh, alleged abduction cases. And one of these cases, interestingly, uh, the woman uh, asserted that she had been abducted and carried onto a uh, spacecraft by a Bigfoot. Oh, well. <laughs> so, wow. Go figure. Hmm. Well, that's interesting, Laura, because there are actually a lot of cases like that where um, people have, have seen, I, I mean, like literal UFOs. There's a friend of mine, Stan Gordon, wrote a very good book called Silent Invasion, which is all about a wave of Bigfoot UFO activity in Pennsylvania in 1973. And that book, I mean, just makes it very, very clear that the phenomenon is somehow interconnected and in terms of time frames locations there are cases like with bigfoot where people have had missing time they've been in the woods they've seen the creature and then it's vanished and that kind of felt confused almost drunk for like a short period and they think 20 minutes has gone by and then when they kind of come out of this weird state it's sometimes three four five hours has gone by and they just cannot account for it well, that's what happened to this woman. I mean, oh. she had total missing time. Uh, she was in a completely frantic state. It's, uh, a lot of stuff going on, and, you know, I was just trying to settle her down. Mm-hmm. And we went into it and, and looked at it, and I, you know, used some special techniques because I'm not your... Oh, <laughs> alien abductions was not my specialty. <laughs> you know, habit control, stress reduction, you know, uh, past life regression maybe, but, you know... Not not aliens and UFOs, and yeah. I, I was really really astonished to have this come up and and have her make make these claims. And then, oh, probably uh, a month later, she uh, she called me in a panic, and something else had happened to her, and she she came over, and she had these uh, these bruises on her arms and the backs of her knees, as though she had been carried by, you know, like the backs of the arms. And the backs of the knees, like she'd been carried by, uh, and, and the thing was, was that the prince had only like three fingers and a, and a wraparound thumb. So there was, it was, oh, wow. really, it was, it was a weird time in my life. I don't do that anymore. 
Yeah. Well, that, that, that is actually very interesting because there's a lot of reports of three-toed and three-fingered Bigfoot and also four-fingered. That's one of those strange things. It's almost as if there are different types. But um, no, that, that's interesting because that is like a, a classic case where you have sort of a crossover between UFOs and strange animals. But, I mean, you get that in all sorts of other aspects of cryptozoology as well. It's not, not just actually with Bigfoot. Mm-hmm. Yeah, maybe you could... Maybe you could describe some other creatures for us that are particularly well, yeah. to you or that keep occurring. What, do you mean where there's like this crossover? Uh, Not no. necessarily, just on the cryptozoology yeah. angle. Oh, okay. What? Yeah. Well, one of the other ones I've spent a lot of time investigating expedition-wise is the Chupacabra of Puerto Rico. I've been there on a lot of occasions, um, sort of traveling around the island and interviewing people and you know checking out sites where... Animals are reported of being killed and um, with these weird puncture wounds on the neck. And um, th- there's no doubt in my mind that the chupacabra of Puerto Rico is a, it's a very real animal. I mean, what it is, I don't know. People kind of describe it. The yellow reports from the U.S., but that's sort of a different phenomenon, uh, which has been named the chupacabra, which is a whole story alone. But the Puerto Rican one is described as sort of having a monkey-like body, but around about the size of a chimpanzee, but hairless, um, with a row of sort of spikes down its head and neck, kind of like a punk rock mohawk going from the top of its head down the back of its spine. Um, And this sort of sharp fangs and talons and glowing red eyes. And um, some Mm. people claim that it sucks the blood out of farm animals. And um, although I've never personally found any evidence that it actually sucks blood, there is evidence that it certainly kills people and, excuse me, kills animals and um, at hmm. least laps the blood up, um, you know, which, which is a very different thing. Um, and even some cases, people talk about the creature having like, large bat-like wings, and this has actually given rise to an interesting theory. What if the Chupacabra Puerto Rico is some sort of huge bat, far bigger than any acknowledged bat? You know, they have kind of a squirrel monkey type face um which would tie in you know they have although the bat wings the, so you know it same, could be i mean the same problem applies though like you just said about bigfoot i mean really if one, something like that exists they haven't found one well yeah i mean well the thing is what makes puerto rico a little bit different is that most you know unfortunately puerto rico is sort of very poor country uh, island and most of the people on the island really don't have any interest in looking for it because they're too busy trying to make a living and survive. You know, mm-hmm. the only people who are really looking for the Chupacabra on Puerto Rico are people like me who go there looking for it. And um, Puerto Rico is sort of dominated by massive rainforest. You know, it, mm-hmm. it isn't really, you know, imagine you're just wandering around London or Paris or somewhere and then there's just a few woods. No, the entire island is just heavily rainforested everywhere you know so most people again aren't sort of walking sort of five six miles into the rainforest every day looking for it and and most of the Mm. attacks occur at night but in saying that there are a lot of reports also that where you've got crossover cases where people have seen ufos again at the same Mm -hmm. uh, time and location as ufos or strange lights and and i know of a couple of cases where people in puerto rico had seen the chupacabra 
and then afterwards received sort of weird men in black type visits where they were warned not to talk about the the sighting or the event. So mm-hmm. again, you you do have that parallel there as well. Mm, yeah, absolutely. Um, it's uh, I don't know. I mean, I haven't read of any uh, major kind of cryptozoological phenomenon like with some kind of a weird creature like the chupacabras or Bigfoot where ultimately there hasn't been some kind of a connection there and in particular even in the chupacabras I think I've read some cases where it, it, it did have some kind of an otherworldly kind of yeah. uh, oh, yeah. aspect to it so it's not like it's just some crazy kind of large dog or rabbit something, oh, no. you know well, I mean, you can always uh, look, also look at Loch Ness. I mean, Loch Ness, Scotland, um, people every, think of the Loch Ness Monster. Many people don't know how many other weird things have gone on at Loch Ness. For example, um, mm-hmm. back in the early part of the 20th century, one of the m- most famous occultists, Alex Crowley, actually had a house on the shores of Loch Ness called Beleskin House, which is still there. And he tried to summon up demons from within the loch. Not long before... Um, we had the sort of the modern wave of Loch Ness Monster sightings begin. There are reports of people trying to photograph the Loch Ness Monster where only to have their cameras jam or the pictures come out fogged. That's happened mm-hmm. a lot. Uh, there have been UFO sightings over uh, the loch itself. A lot of mm-hmm. reports on around the shores and the roads of Loch Ness of people seeing large black cats, you know, kind of like the so-called Beast of Bodmin in England, mm-hmm. sort of like large um, like leopard or puma-type cats. Um, and there are a couple of famous ghost stories from Loch Ness as well. So, in other words, the entire loch itself is like a magnet for weirdness. It's not just the Loch Ness monster, you know, so you mm-hmm. can sort of apply it to there even. Just getting back to your um, to the UFO topic, I mean, uh, you're, again, I was just going to, mentioned your your latest book uh, Close Encounters of the Fatal Kind uh, talks a lot about um, obviously about UFOs um, and fatalities uh, associated with U- with UFO encounters but it also talks a lot about um, the evidence for uh, a kind of crossover with U- the US military or the government, the US government being well aware of, of the UFO phenomenon, taking a keen interest in it and even uh, the possibility that the U.S. government or some faction of the U.S. government or military has been involved in faking UFO events. Yeah, this is a controversial area. When people say, you know, who's hiding or who's sitting on top of the secrets, I actually don't personally think it is the government, nor nor do I think... I have a, I have a very big uh, sort of differing opinion to a lot of people in the UFO field, whereas they sort of point the finger at the government or the Air Force or the CIA and call them the bad guys. I actually don't. I I truly don't believe the U.S. government is hiding the truth about UFOs. What I think is that there's like like an offshoot, like a shadow government kind of thing that operates outside of the conventions of regular government and law and that has sort of tentacles and strands all around the world and that for all intents and purposes doesn't exist, and that people within governments, most people don't know anything about it. It's sort of like a, like I said, like a shadow agency. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think they're the ones who are hiding the truth, and I think they're the ones that have instigated sort of these murders and deaths. I, you know, when people say, why are the CIA killing 
UFO researchers, I say, well, I don't think they are any more than I think the Air Force is or the Pentagon or anyone. No, it's, um, it, it, I think the best way to describe it is kind of almost like a, I think it's like a modern day sort of Illuminati or something like that, where you've mm -hmm. got powerful figures with lots of money and rich, powerful ancient families um, and where it's all linked in with sort of private sector classified technological research um, now that's not to say like they're hidden literally underground anywhere no they're you know they operate out of secure facilities but they are like private corporations I mean if you look at the UFO subject it's, it's clear from the official records that the gov government agencies around the world were heavily involved in the UFO subject from sort of the 40s through the 60s but if you look at the files it's like there's a sudden tail off then and people have said, well, that's because the government just lost interest. No, what I think is it wasn't that. I think that period was when it was siphoned off from mm -hmm. government agencies and was then taken over by sort of private corporations, very powerful private corporations doing classified work. And essentially they were the ones who took control and they're the ones mm -hmm. still in control of the, of the situation. Yeah, and I think that's why we haven't made much advance because everybody keeps knocking on the door of the Pentagon and they keep saying, "Well, we've got mm -hmm. nothing." You know, yeah. it's like with, with Roswell. Don't. Yeah, it's like with Roswell. The Air Force put out this report saying, "Well, we went looking, we checked everywhere, we cannot find anything." And you had a lot of UFO researchers screaming, "Oh, the Air Force are just lying." I, I truly don't think today's Air Force has any more knowledge of what happened at Roswell than we do. They're as baffled as us as to why. Mm -hmm something weird seems to have happened but they can't find anything on it and i think the idea of like a a secret offshoot a secret government mm -hmm. would make a lot of sense in terms of why we cannot get anything because we're knocking on the wrong doors yeah i the 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 reference that i was uh, thinking of specifically was um where you mentioned uh um is it i think it's called horn island in mississippi where there oh, yeah. was a kind of research facility there into, yeah. and this is where it kind of blends over into uh, CIA government research into the kind of MK Ultra program and into mind-altering drugs, etc. And there's some evidence there of uh, an alien encounter that happened near the Horn Island um, that may have been the result of the, the, mm. the, the two men who were fishing on the Pascagoula River being... Um, subjected to some kind of uh, experimental drugs that then induced a kind mm. of a, an experience, even if there was some kind of a, some kind of a charade put on by this, these elements of the secret government that you're talking about, are the people who are controlling the phenomenon. Um, yeah, I mean, this is a sort of an interesting story. Horn Island is located in Mississippi, and it's like about a 10, 11, 12-mile-long island, not a very big place, but it's where, over the years, a lot of classified research has been undertaken into sort of psychedelic and hallucinogenic drugs and, and, um, and things like this. And one of the ones that was tested widely from the 60s onwards uh, was one that's come known as BZ or Buzz. And this is um, essentially like a compound that can create massively weird hallucinations in a, in a person. It doesn't sort of knock you out. It just really sort of takes over your mind and, you know, the hallucinations become um, reality. And what's interesting is that if the person is sort of primed properly, the, the nature of the hallucination can be sort of controlled. That's in the sense that 
you know, if or dictated, I should say. That's to say, if um, you were exposed to BZ and somebody put before you like an eight-foot-tall model of a werewolf, then your hallucination could actually begin to develop where that creature would sort of come to life. It wouldn't really, obviously, but it would in the hallucination. Mm -hmm. In other words, the, the, the nature of the hallucination can be can be dictated. It's not like just a random event. And this go, co all uh, sort of comes together with a October 1973 UFO encounter in which a man named Charles Hickson, another one named Calvin Parker, they were actually fishing on the Pascagoula River in Mississippi. And around about nine o'clock, they saw this strange light and sort of felt disoriented. And then suddenly... Um, this light moved towards them and sort of out of nowhere, these strange creatures pounced on them and hauled them aboard this craft. Now, it sounds like a, a classic alien UFO encounter. And, you know, I'll be the first to admit that may well be exactly what it was. But what I find particularly interesting is that the, the site of this encounter uh, on the Pascagoula River was only seven and a half miles from, Horn, from the part of Horn Island where all the BZ um, experimentation was still going on at that particular time. And the guys reported seeing this light in the sky come towards them. Then they felt disoriented, and then the occurrence or the event occurred. I kind of wonder and speculate, although admittedly it's not like a hard and fast um, conclusion I've got, I, but I do speculate on the possibility that you imagine a helicopter flying, you know, sort of a quarter of a mile away, sees two people, they're going to be the targets. So they, you know, apply like a, an aerosol-based dispersal of this hallucinogenic and just wait for it to have its effect on the people. And then, you know, what originally began like a helicopter encounter, the people see the lights coming towards them and before they know it, they're so affected by BZ that, you know, the lights from the helicopter become a flying saucer and who's to say they may well have been dragged on board something uh, perhaps mm -hmm. by guys in you know gas masks and hazmat suits mm -hmm. so they don't get affected and that then becomes in their hallucinatory state aliens I, as i said mm -hmm. i'm not hard and fast saying that is what happened but i do think we should explore further the the connection between the location of the events and the location mm -hmm. of all these experiments that were going on one thing about that case was was that the alleged alien was really kind of totally different from any other abduction mm. uh, case. It was kind of like a mechanical being in some kind of a suit, yeah. and I think uh, had some kind of opening in the face mask and and strange claws or something. Mm -hmm. And it, it was just really weird. It was not the usual well, the, alien. Yeah, and the other interesting thing about it is, is between the two guys who were supposedly abducted, one of them came to view it as a as a positive experience and mm. give lots of interviews and the other guy had a, had a, ner a nervous, a nervous breakdown. breakdown and yeah. just went, in, went into kind of isolation or became no a recluse and didn't want to talk about it. You know? Nick, what do you think about Travis Walton? Oh, well, I've actually met Travis Walton and, um, and I, I think he comes across as a very credible guy. Um, I listened to him give a lecture actually late last year, I think it was September, October, and um, he came across very credible, sort of lucid and happy to answer questions and anything he didn't know about, you know, it's like, well, sorry, I don't know about that. And, yeah, I do find it 
interesting that you know his his story has not changed. People who hoax stories um, and people have levelled that. Uh, Travis Walton. People who hoax stories often the story changes over time as part of it falls apart and they come up with another explanation explanation for this or for that. No, he he just tells it as it happened and um I mean I, I think he had a genuine experience. Um and I think you get that when you sort of hang out with somebody for a weekend and you know, you have dinner with them and you sit opposite them, you, you become you know, you can get a good idea of their character and so on and I, I think his was a legitimate case. Did he ever comment on how accurate the experience was portrayed in the movie version? Yeah, I mean he, he said that, that obviously I mean he wasn't mad about it but he just said he realized that from the perspective of if it's going to be made into a movie, well they've got to make it entertaining for the for the viewer, you know, it's like any non-fiction book on any subject that becomes a movie they're going to sort of take liberties and change things for the uh. purely but they're condensing it down to sort of two hours or whatever you know uh, that that's sort of inevitable so yeah there were some things that were different but the, the story itself i think was sort of presented uh pretty much close but there were just certain aspects that were you know obviously done for effect uh, because right. it was a movie yeah are you familiar with the work of John Keel? <clears throat> oh, yeah. Yeah, I know his work well, yeah. Well, did you ever think about the chupacabras in relation to Mothman? <laughs> well, kind of... yeah, I mean, yeah. There are some similarities in the sense that, you know, these are winged creatures. And you can find reports of strange winged animals all around the world and throughout history. You can go back to sort of the days of the harpies and gargoyles of centuries ago. But also, you have things like, for example, um, in England, um, they have a creature very similar to Mothman in the south of England, Cornwall, that's known as Owlman. And that's almost identical to Mothman in the sense that it's like a humanoid-type creature with these large red eyes and, um, and sort of very ominous as, as well, just like Mothman. Um, there's actually one... Here in Texas, back in the 50s, people were seeing a creature that back then became known as the Houston Batman. And it was only ever seen at night, and it was like a, a man-like figure, again, with large bat-like wings. So you can actually find reports like this everywhere. I think Mothman is just sort of the most famous one. But I agree with a lot of John Keel's conclusions, how he came to believe that all these phenomena are somehow interlinked, interconnected, and that they sort of masquerade as sort of this or that, and they have sort of a trickster manipulative angle to them as well, where the more you get into the subject, it's almost like the subject gets into you and people become, like I said, literally manipulated by the phenomenon in some respects. God, you can say that again. What about <laughs> spring Hill Jack? Have you ever looked into spring Hill Jack, and do you have any yeah, opinion on yeah. him? Yeah, I mean, well, spring Hill Jack's sort of an interesting story. It sort of has a lot of strands of various other mysteries, which kind of makes it even more confusing. There's sort of some of the reports have a, a few many black aspects to them. Others, for example, have um, a Jack the Ripper um, overtones. Other people kind of view them view it similar to the so-called shadow people that we see today. Um, so there are a lot of different aspects to it, but it's sort of, you know, this sort of creepy character running around London. You know, it does have a lot of parallels um, 
I said with things like Jack the Ripper and and the Man in Black and um, sort of paranormal, you know, sort of parasitic creatures almost in, in some respects. You just said shadow people. What's that? Oh, well, shadow people, um, it's not a new phenomenon, but it's only in the last few years that it's gained a lot of momentum. Shadow people are where people uh, report, very often they're sort of asleep at night. Have you ever heard of sleep paralysis? It's like that, where people wake up in the middle of the night and they're not, unable to move. They're in like a semi-sleep awake state. So the body's mm-hmm. still sleeping, but their mind's awake and they're unable to move. And they have a sense of a threatening paranormal presence in the room. Now, mm-hmm. this, um, the, stories like this go back throughout history, literally to the dawning of man, um, when you had stories of things like incubus and succubus, which were sort of like male and female predatory creatures that would uh, turn up in people's bedrooms in the middle of the night, and, and again, the person would be unable to move. Um, you know, just barely move their fingers or their eyes and this creature would come towards them and it would be sort of very stressful experience and um, people all around the world today still get them but in the last few years there have been more and more reports where instead of seeing like a monstrous creature or a demon or whatever today people are seeing more of these shadow people imagine your shadow on the ground what it looks like they're sort of like that in some cases they're literally like a one-dimensional flat shadowy man-sized thing that walks towards the bed and just looms over the person ominously um and these reports are actually becoming more and more and, and rather bizarrely um the it looks like an outline as i said like a silhouette of a man but more often than not they're wearing like an old style trilby hat like from the 40s and the 50s and mm-hmm. so you have this offshoot of the shadow people that's known as the hat man um and but also that's how some of the men in black dress and they have sort of mm-hmm. paranormal aspects to them as well so there could be a tie-in with all of this but whatever these sort of bedroom encounters are caused by it seems the phenomenon seems to have the ability to change its appearance and for different people as i said some people see a demon some see monsters some see the shadow people Others see, like, there's one in, a famous one in Canada, Newfoundland, called the old hag, which is like an old lady who comes into the bedroom and screams at you, you know, and, um, and again, the person's unable to move. So I think the phenomenon is real, but I think it's sort of, I think it can literally get into the mind of the person and pull out their worst nightmare, and it literally then appears in that form. And, and the theory that why they do it is that these entities possibly live on high states of human emotion, whereas we eat, you know, we have food and drink, they thrive on energy, and the higher the state of energy, and possibly even negative energy, they sort Here, of yeah. bleed it dry from the person like a parasite. That's, uh, well, in terms of whether it's real or not, I can actually, you know, put my hand up and say that I've actually had one of those experiences a long time ago when I was a teenager, and I was, it's very, very similar to what you described, I was in bed, uh, at night, I was actually in bed with my my sister was in, in the bed beside me, and she was asleep. And the light was on. <clears throat> the bed was against the wall, and the light was uh, the door was to my left, to the left of the bed, and the light was shining through the door uh, from a hallway, and I couldn't see the hallway. And I woke up, and I couldn't move at all. 
but I was gripped by a, a growing and increasing sense of real extreme fear that something was coming along the hallway into the room, and I did not want to be there when that happened. And, and, and I couldn't move. I mean, the only thing I could do was kind of blink and breathe, you know. And I decided that I had to in some way be able to break this kind of paralysis because my first inclination was to get up and run away or turn the light on or do something, but I was paralyzed. So uh, all I could do was breathe. So I figured that if I breathe as loudly as possible, like through my nose, you know, that kind of like that, that there was a chance that I would wake my sister up or something. So I did that, and my sister didn't wake up, but she kind of half woke up and just kind of went, eh, well, you know, didn't say anything, but just kind of like nudged me or as if to get me to shut up. And when she touched me, the paralysis was broken, and that was the end oh, of it. There was no more... You know, there was no, it wasn't like at that point, then I could move and now I can get up and see who's coming. No, the fear, everything was gone. It was like, so, I mean, that's what you just described really just reminded me of that. Yeah, I've, I've had similar experiences. But, you know, what I think interesting is uh, uh, Carla Turner in one of her books, I think I think it's Taken. Uh, she describes these, what she just described as the shadow, shadow-like pe- people that, uh, somebody in her family was uh, describing a shadow being and it just produced a shadow and that was it and they couldn't describe it any more clearly than that. It was just... So I'm, it's curious that that's what you're talking about here. I, I, it just triggered that memory of reading that passage about that shadow being in one of her books. Very interesting. Well, again, I think I think where the problem comes in for us as investigators is that if these things can sort of alter their appearance and one person sees this and somebody else sees that and it sort of manifests according to the person's subconscious beliefs or whatever, I think there's often a tendency to, for researchers to naturally think they're dealing with a lot of different things. But it may actually be just one thing but that can appear in sort of different guises, so to speak. And... Um, the, I think sort of manipulating and using the human race is sort of a common factor that so comes into just, play in a lot of these stories. It just finds what's in your head and unpacks it. Yeah, and sometimes, you know, if you've got the worst nightmares, well, that's, that's going to come out even worse for you then. Um, Nick, I have a question about um, UFOs. In your last book, you mentioned that uh, the U.S. authorities and the U.K. authorities as well... Um, initiated to fabricate certain UFO episodes, so faking UFOs. And um, according to you, what is the reason why U.S. and U.K. authorities were planning to do so? Well, I, think, I don't think this has happened on a lot of occasions, because if it had, then I think we clearly would have known. But I think it only needs to be done a few times to to gather the information you want. Number one, I think... Governments know that there's a genuine UFO phenomenon, but I think they're concerned about how the general public might react in the event of like a major UFO encounter occurring or even a major worldwide series of landings. And I think in the early years of ufology, when there was a great concern that nobody really knew what the UFO phenomenon was going to do. I mean, we know today after 70 years that the UFO phenomenon hasn't shown itself, you know, it, the phenomenon itself acts in secrecy. Um, there hasn't been that mass landing that I think governments feared was going to happen in sort of the 50s or 60s. 
And so I think what happens, because <laughs> you can't really um, anticipate where a major UFO event's going to occur, and you're not able to determine how the population would react to it, what I think is that some of these events were fabricated and then watched carefully, not so much to see if the witness could be fooled, which they clearly could, I think, but to see how the witness react, reacted to the event. So in other words, if you can sit back and watch how the general public react to a UFO event that you've staged, that would actually give you a good indicator as to how they might react in the real world when a real UFO landed. That's, you know, as I said, no one can predict where a UFO is going to occur, not even the government. So it's hard for them to know. But if they can be in control of the situation and fabricate an event and watch it and see what happens, you know, then they could have their teams of psychologists or whoever looking mm -hmm. into it and say, well, yes, this person reacted like that, the other person reacted like this. And that probably, in my view at least, would result in, you know, major sort of papers and studies put together that would allow them to try and figure out just how it, the, the effect it would have in the real world. So I think that's why mm. it's done. But I don't think there's much need to do it today because the answers they were looking for, they got years ago in, the, in these earlier experiments. Mm. I think if you think about that idea of what governments would be afraid of in terms of the UFO phenomenon and, and people en masse becoming aware or accepting or giving, being given evidence that it's, it's a reality, I'm not sure just the mere fact of there being life out there or wherever is, is their fear because when you look at some of the history of, uh, and the case studies of what these supposed aliens do to people, I think there's a much scarier kind of situation there and something that the government might uh, be even more concerned about in terms of the reality of it because and maybe it's best summed up and it's in your book as well, a quote from um, Charles Ford uh, where in, in his book uh, uh, well, wild talents are low or new lands, he famously wrote, I think we're property. I mm. should say we belong to something. <laughs> now, that's a lot yeah. scarier than, hey, there's Space Brothers out there, and no, the Space Brothers own us, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, I think there's actually, I think you're right when you say that, I, I think if, if all we had, say, in the 40s and 50s, were a few encounters, or even a wave of encounters, and... One or two UFO crashed and government agencies, you know, got the wreckage and they recovered five or six bodies and stored them in, like, formaldehyde or, or whatever. I actually think if that's all it was, that we probably would have been told. You know, we might not have been told at the time, but, you know, the 70s, 80s, 90s, I think we yeah. would have been told that, okay, yes, we're going to come clean. Something did visit us back in the 40s and 50s and one or two of their craft crashed and we've got them or we've got the wreckage and we've got a few bodies but we don't really know much more than that other than somebody yeah. came. And if yeah. that's all it was, I think we'd be told. But I, mm -hmm. I agree with you. I think government agencies or shadow agencies, whatever you want to call them, <laughs> have learned that there's something more to the subject, something sort of so <clears throat> controversial and profound that they dare not tell us. And so for the fear of the big secret coming out, even the little secrets for the most part, nobody wants to get out in case yeah. it's sort of... Uh gets the you know the wheels turning and the ball yeah. rolling and then it's unstoppable and the whole thing uh -huh. comes out. Yeah, well, just in terms of like uh, the scarier aspect of it, there's another uh, incident that you uh, quote or recount in, in your book um, about something that happened in the jungles of Cambodia 
1973 involving, I'm getting there. involving U.S. Uh, mil- you know military number? personnel. Well, Nick's going to... Nick, Nick can tell us about that. It gives a quick Yeah, I, I couldn't tell you from memory with the actual page number, but uh, the story itself is uh, actually comes from a former U.S. intelligence officer, Leonard Stringfield, mm-hmm. who, after his retirement, um, began to dig heavily into the UFO subject because he actually had an encounter in 1946 when he was still with the military, and it sort of changed his life. And so after retirement, that's what he focused on. But um, he uncovered, uh, or actually was given a story by a close colleague and friend, a high-ranking military officer. Um, And this fell into the category of what had become known as human mutilations, where all around the world, thankfully there aren't that many, or I say there aren't many, what we know there aren't many, put it that way. The cases we have on record aren't, uh, you know, a large number, but that doesn't mean there haven't been a large number because, I mean, significant numbers of people vanish every year. But um, this particular case um, revolves around an encounter or an incident that occurred at the height of the Vietnam War in Cambodia. And um, it revolved around a, what you might call like a, almost like an SAS, Black Ops, Delta Force type unit that was going into the jungles of Cambodia to take out a North Vietnamese um, uh, sort of covert third ops unit. And they got to the location roughly where this unit was supposed to be housed. And um, they came across instead like a large globe-shaped UFO with these tripod-type legs and surrounding it uh, these creatures that clearly weren't human. They weren't described as like the sort of classic little greys of ufology. They were sort of five to six feet tall but thin and and had a vaguely similar appearance to the greys, but as I said, much taller. Um, And they were reportedly loading um, human bodies and body parts into these large bins and sealing them and then loading them aboard the UFO. And for all the training that this group had had, even they weren't prepared for this, I guess, and... um, They kind of all froze for a second or two, which actually gave the aliens the chance to unleash some sort of like a heat ray weapon on them. Um, And then the soldiers began firing back, and this firefight reportedly ended in both sides having to retreat, uh, with injuries and deaths on both sides as well. But the story told to Leonard Stringfield was that all the military personnel involved were debriefed. (laughs) And given like a post-hypnotic... Um, suggestion to try and make them forget the events and sort of cover it up with a screen memory and uh, apparently it worked for a while um, this involved the use of hallucinogenics and drugs to sort of subliminally try and make them forget but over time over years the memories and the nightmares came back and um, another Stringfield went on record as saying that I mean he knew the guy knew his name and um, he was a highly trustworthy, very credible military source. And I think, I think that kind of thing alone would be enough for agencies all around the world not to sort of open the door on the UFO subject. You know, it's one thing to tell the public that, well, yeah, Roswell did occur and we have got some strange wreckage and, we, and we've got four mangled bodies that are still preserved after 70 years. That's one thing to tell people that. It's a very different thing to tell them that we've got, stories and accounts where we believe and suspect that people have been kidnapped and dissected and it might have gone on you know thousands of times and we have no way to stop it 
there, there's no way. There's just no way they're going to tell people that. Okay, there's a there's a little twist to this because when I read that passage in this book, I think that's that's when I I told Joe I says we got to get this guy on the show <laughs> because that's the first time I've ever read anything that uh, comes close to something that kind of was very personal for us uh, in our experience. Um, and I'll give you just a little background. I'll try to make it short. Uh, my son, expand on it. I don't mind. <laughs> well, I, I think it might raise the hair on your head. But uh, well, I shave that every day, so that might be quite difficult. <laughs> I use hairspray. <laughs> anyway, when my son was about three years old, he would uh, jump up and down when he saw very large planes flying, you know, low enough that he could see things about about them and he would jump up and down and say I used to fly planes I used to fly planes and uh, and we would you know kind of humor him and this went on for a while and he would tell us stories about you know his dog gave us the name of his dog his sister um, you know this whole other life that he would tell us about and you know I mean I just (laughs) come on I did past life therapy so I just said okay so he's having some past life memory and uh, it'll go away nothing to worry about and then a little further along he started having some physical problems and I took him to several doctors and they said that he had uh, some problem with the growth of his leg <clears throat> so um, it was not until you see in 1992 I started uh, an experiment in channeling because I wasn't happy with what other people were doing and I wanted to see if I could do a better job but it was really kind of experimental, and it took about two years to get anything worth um, paying any attention to. And somewhere along the way, I asked uh, just, you know, one of the test questions, you know, because I kept asking test questions, you know, can this uh, can this source that's responding to me answer things that I, you know, know something about, or can they give me some information that uh, I don't know, or that sort of thing. So I asked about... <clears throat> what was wrong with my son's leg and they said that he had been a pilot in Vietnam and he'd been shot down and his leg was had been torn off when the missile hit so um, I said well you know obviously the next question is what was his name and they gave me a name and I thought well okay that's pretty cool that's interesting but I didn't really think that there was anything I could do about it Somewhere along the way, after I had begun this experiment and also was, uh, you know, doing some alien abduction hypnosis, I gave a little talk on various subjects to a local MUFON meeting in Clearwater, Florida. And at the meeting, there was a journalist who was looking for something interesting to write about. So he decided I was the interesting topic. So that's what made this whole thing, as it developed, uh, even more fascinating was that he was there uh, as a kind of third-party objective witness as things developed. <clears throat> so one of the members of our experimental group decided to find out if there was any way to confirm this name that had been given for my son in his past life. And he went through all of the uh, killed-in-action uh, records and found a name that was damned similar. I mean, just like the first and middle names were exactly identical, but the last name hadn't been given. And, and the 
uh, individual had lived in Punta Gorda, which is, you know, in South Florida. So um, this was announced, and this was one of our, our sessions where the journalist, his name is Tom French, was also present. And he says, well, what are you going to do about this? And I says, well, I'm not going to do anything about it. And But because of his urging, um, I said, well, okay, let's try to get some more details. And I wanted to find out if the person who had the same name that was given by the channel source that was supposed to have been my son in a previous life as a pilot in Vietnam, you know, had died in the way that had been described. You know, I was just looking for a hit, right? I mean, I wasn't really trying to do anything more than that. So I... I uh, <clears throat> I decided to see if I could get an account of the death, you know, like from the obituary or from a news article or something from the time. So I called the newspapers in Punta Gorda and didn't really get any results there because uh, it was all archived. And one of the people at the newspaper said, well, why don't you call the funeral home? Or, you know, she said, call the library. So I called the library and they said, and they gave me the name of the funeral home that had handled the arrangement. She says, why don't you call the funeral home? So I called the funeral home and I started talking to the funeral director and he says, well, why are you asking about this George Ray? And I had a story, but for some reason I decided not to tell the story, to just tell him the truth. And so I told him the truth. I said, you know, my son, uh, since he was a little kid, he said he was a pilot, et cetera, et cetera. And then I didn't tell him about the channeling. <clears throat> I said, uh, so he said, you know, his name was George Ray, and he died this way, et cetera, et cetera, and I'm just trying to confirm those details. And the guy just nearly, uh, he, he must have been, you know, nearly ready to pass out. He says, oh, my God, my God. He says, you, can't, you couldn't have known it. He says, but I'm a personal friend of the family, and everything you have just told me is absolutely correct. So I said, okay, fine. So this develops into a whole other story in another direction, but the, the point that I want to get to, and it was all, you know, done under the under the eye of a journalist who was, you know, there for the meeting because we did go and meet the family and, and things kind of went in kind of a wonky way. But then I decided, okay, um, it's time to do a, a hypnosis session with my son to see if I can help relieve this problem because if he got shot down and killed in Vietnam, he's obviously got some trauma, right? So let me see if we can go in and we can relieve this trauma because he's got this leg problem. So we go in and we do a what is just going to be a, a hypnosis session, which is going to take him through a past life memory of a traumatic death, go through it, you know, abreact the emotions, you know, very basic stuff. <clears throat> And what came out was actually quite different because he began to describe flying along in his plane and saying, my God, what is that smell? What is that smell? And I said, you know, and I, I asked him what he's talking about. He says, it's the bins, the bins. And I says, what do you mean the bins? He says, the bins full of body parts. Hmm. And I said, you know, and I asked him, what are you talking about? Well, you know, they, they put bins of body parts on the plane. And I said, who did? And he described these creatures that you described in your book, putting wow. bins of body parts on his plane. You know, they had they had kind of like abducted him, the plane, or, what, or forced him to land or whatever, and had um, loaded these bins of body parts on his plane 
And then he was flying along, and that's when he was shot down, and he was shot down by friendly fire. Hmm. Well, that's, yeah. that's really interesting. That, that's sort of very close. Um, and it's interesting also, I think one of the other reasons why there might be so much secrecy around the UFO subject is because when you talk about past lives, there are a lot of cases, particularly abductions, where the entities that do the abducting seem to know something about like the afterlife and um, and souls and things like that. There are a lot of stories about abductees feeling that the the whole process or purpose of the abduction was something to do with the human soul and the afterlife. So, you know, when you bring up the afterlife as well and, and previous lives with the UFO phenomenon, I think that's another good reason why we're not being told the truth because these. I think somebody's realised these aren't clearly just somebody else's equivalent of NASA. They're sort of really beyond strange, you know. Mm-hmm. Nick, do you have an idea why uh, aliens, UFOs, take away body parts or perform a human mutilation? What's the objective? Mm, well, I mean, there are lots of different theories. I mean, one of the theories, of course, is the idea that um, it's sort of like a gene splicing operation to try and make human alien hybrids, the sort of thing that uh, Dr. David Jacobs talks about in his book, The Threat. Now, some researchers view it as a positive thing, the idea that they're trying to create half-human hybrids to have like a next generation of superhumans who can sort of put the planet on the right path. David Jacobs thinks it's more disturbing where they're trying to create human-like crossbreeds to infiltrate us and sort of take over from within. Um, it may just be that um, it's sort of just biological experimentation to see, you know, what makes us tick, so to speak. Um, I think we sort of view it gruesome and disturbing because the experiments are undertaken on people, but we undertake experiments on rabbits and rats, and we don't give it a second thought. But I think it could be like that. We view it, it could, it could be to them, just a regular day-to-day thing they don't give it any thought but we do because we we assume we're sort of like the leading creature on the planet and so if we start being experimented on then it has to be sinister but if we look at it from their perspective we might just be you know somebody's lab rat that's you know the unfortunate person who gets picked up and potted and dissected you know well what if what you said a while ago connects to what you just now said that they feed on the emotions or the energy and what if all of this experimentation is not really because they want to know or need to know or need to breed something because they would certainly based on their capabilities be perfectly able to do those things without you know what amount to rather primitive genetic experiments what if the whole point of it is to you know, what if David Jacobs is right, and what if the other part of it is they do feed on our energy? That's a good point. Yeah, you keep, that's a good way of looking. I didn't really think of it like that before, but no, I mean that would sort of explain sort of both sides of it. And um, but I mean there are a lot of cases where it seems like the fear is engineered for a reason. For example, a lot of the Men in Black reports where people report being visited by the Men in Black after a UFO encounter. The, when people think of the Men in Black, they think of you know Tommy Lee Jones and Will Smith, the movies. But mm-hmm. most of the real reports, the Men in Black are described as as looking sort of semi-human, semi-alien. They're like five foot, five foot five, 
very pale, skinny, um, and acting in a really sort of strange fashion. And um, one of the things in a lot of these cases is that the men in black seem to go out of their way to frighten people. Um, that seems to be the major thrust of the events, and a lot of researchers assume that's done to silence the person. Well, it could be, but it could be also if you threaten the person and it frightens them badly, then you could potentially feed on that energy as well. So in other words, silencing the person might be the ruse. You know, that's what we think it is, but it could just be that they deliberately create high states of fear in many black encounters to bleed, bleed it dry. And there are some examples of that where the men in black, uh, excuse me, where the witnesses to the men in black have said that when the men in black are in the room with them, they felt like they've started to crash, like, like I guess like a diabetic person would if they had missed two meals or something. You know, their body starts to feel weak and, you know, they get the shakes and so on. And that's how people well, yeah. who've seen the men in black, they have that feeling as well. Well, you know, that happens, I think, with human-to-human uh, -human encounters sometimes. You can be around a person who can uh, induce that feeling in you. So it's, it's not unlikely that they're absorbing some kind of energy. I mean, you, you referred to physics a while. You know, my husband is a physicist, and, you know, these are the kinds of things that we we speculate and talk about a great deal. And one of them, one thing we talked about years and years ago was, you know, when you look at something and you receive, you know, the waveform energy or whatever, the light refraction that uh, gives you the image of an object that hits your retina and gets sent to your brain, translated into a picture and so forth. You know, he, the question he asked back then was, well, when you're looking, you get that in, but what if what you're looking is giving energy out. And, of course, just recently they've done some experiments to show that you do actually emit photons from your eyes, that you affect what you look at as much as, you know, you're receiving an, an, an image. So what if that is, uh, you know, extrapolated out to other things that, you know, people can emit or take up or, you know, energy from one another and, and that these alien creatures just do it you know, bigger, better, badder. On and, another scale. Yeah, on a completely other mm -hmm. scale. And that's, uh, you know, that's something else to think about. Mm -hmm. No, that's a mm -hmm. good point. And Nick, in, uh, in your book, Final Events, you um, present a correlation between demonic entities and, uh, and aliens. So could you mm. elaborate on this point? Yeah, Final Events is a book I wrote in 2010. It's probably the most controversial book I've written. It deals with um, like a think tank type group um, that existed and may still exist, I'm not too sure on that, um, sort of within the government but again outside of them. So it's like its own independent entity. And this goes back, the story I actually got from a, a guy named Ray Beauchet. Ray has an interesting background. He's, um, he's a former state director for MUFON, the Mutual UFO Network, and he lives in uh, Lincoln, Nebraska. <coughs> Excuse me, Lincoln, Nebraska. And, but as well as being a former MUFON state director, he's also an Anglican priest. And so in the early 90s, he was contacted by several people with the U.S. Department of Defense who wanted to discuss with Ray uh, a project they were working on to contact what they were calling non-human entities or NHEs. And the first thought was that the NHEs were aliens 
the means by which they were contacting them were sort of channeling and sort of mind-to-mind communication rather than literal face-to-face communication. But they told Ray that the more and more that this project continued and the more sort of channeling contact they had with these entities, it began sort of a weird um, run of bad luck um, from ill health to just a regular bad luck time and time again, but also ill health and, and early deaths and disease and, you know, almost like your worst Monday morning rolled into one. And they actually came to believe that these entities that told them they were aliens, the group came to believe that they were actually demonic. And when I say demonic, I mean literally demonic. That's what they thought they were. And that they were masquerading as aliens to try and get their sort of claws into us, so to speak. And the more the group dug into this, the more they came to believe that the entire UFO phenomenon is... And it's important that I point out that this is... In the book, I tell the story of the group. It's not me endorsing the story. That's why I always have to get that point across to people. But they came to believe that the entire UFO phenomenon is literally demonic, but masquerades as extraterrestrial. And supposedly it all revolves around sort of battle for the human soul. And the idea is that abductions, as they saw it, were done to try and extract the human soul from from people and you know they didn't sort of view it as like the traditional view of heaven and hell you know clouds and angels and a guy with horns and you know this fiery pit they viewed heaven and hell as almost like multi-dimensions where these entities fed on the life source in the human soul almost like demonic vampires feeding on soul energy and that's why there's this so-called battle going on for the human soul that's become distorted over time into like a heaven and hell angels and demons angle. But they, that's what they came to believe, that demons do exist and that, and that that's what's at the heart of the UFO phenomenon. So it's a very controversial story. And a lot of it, granted, as I point out, the people who believe it, you know, it's belief-driven. Um, you know, that was their conclusion. Uh, but, I mean, it's an interesting theory, but it's sort of a disturbing one as well. Well, let me tell you another one of my cases. A young woman uh, who actually happens to be from Texas, um, and she had multiple alleged alien abductions starting from when she was a small child. And what she told me was that these, uh, that they would land their craft or hover out uh, over the field out behind the house and that they would then come to the window and they would take her, you know, kind of like through the window. She she thought she just kind of passed through the window without uh, any any problems, even though it was closed, but they would uh, take her in, onto this craft and they were, sometimes they would come into her bedroom and they would play with her and then they would take her onto the craft and that they were really sweet to her and everything was all, you know, loveliness and light and they were her friends and they were going to come for her again and that this had gone on for quite a while. So, you know, this is pretty much the story I got in the preliminary interviews. And then, of course, we do the hypnosis session. And I'm I'm re- I'm real stickler for not asking leading questions. Mm-hmm. So when things happen in my sessions, it's usually because that's what really happens. And I would take the person through the event, have them describe everything, you know, 
basically by saying, okay, what happened next? Okay, what happened next? You know, that's pretty much all I would say, okay, what happened next? Because I don't want to, you know, ask anything like, you know, a leading question. So when the whole scenario is finished, and he, and here was the problem because this this person had a lot of physical issues, had, uh, you know, like a long-term illness, uh, debilitating, et cetera. And I was wondering if there was any relationship between uh, her illness and these alien abductions. And also, I wondered if maybe she had been sexually abused and she was covering up the sexual abuse by stories of alien abductions, because that does happen, I think. So I wanted to know if it was a sexual abuse issue. So I set up what I, you know, a kind of a, a working operation in her head where she's uh, relaxed in a recliner and she's got a television and a remote control in her hand, you know, all in her mind so that I can take her through the event again. Okay, now you're going to watch it on television, only this time you have the remote control so you can fast forward, you can rewind, you can uh, pause, you can stop. You know, it's it's all happening at a distance because I figured that if it was a very traumatic event, you know, she needs to, a little distance from it which is kind of the reason for doing this. And then, so I take her through it again. She describes pretty much the same thing projected on the television in the uh, scenario that she's created in her mind. But I'm still thinking there's something that, sh that, that she's not seeing or she's not telling me, okay, and I want to know. So then I said, okay, there's another button on the remote control. And... Uh, it's it's called split the screen, and what it what happens when you push this button is that the whole scene stops, and the the screen splits like a curtain opening, and the curtain opens to either side, and you see what is behind the event you have just described. You see, you know, the essential nature of the event, and that's pretty much all I say. You know, I mean, I, I don't want to suggest what it is or what. You might be thinking, but, but basically that you're going to see the essential nature of the event. So I started taking her through it again, and when she got to the point where she was on the ship and everything was all lovely and, and the little aliens were so sweet and they were being all nice to her, I said, okay, now hit the split screen and see what's really going on. And so she hits the split screen and everything, you know, kind of, stops and then all of a sudden she started having this serious um, you know emotional reaction she says you know she was crying and her nose was running and spluttering and gasping for air and uh, just very 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 upset and finally you know I little by little I was able to pick out of her what are you seeing what's going on what's going on she says oh my god she says it's like that horrible creature in the movie and I said what horrible creature and she says you know the Star Wars movie and I said, well, what creature was that? She says, you know, that Jabba creature, you know, this, this horrible, fat, you know, disgusting creature. And I says, well, what's he doing? And she says, well, he's got all these little children like me, and I'm one of them. And she says, and, and he's holding them, you know, up close to him, and he puts his mouth over their faces, and he sucks their, their energy out of them, and he does one at a time, and as soon as they're exhausted, he drops them down beside him and picks up another one and puts his mouth over their face and draws their energy out of them and then puts them down, and then when he's done getting all of this energy, then they, they take us back to our houses and put us in our beds, and that's wow. what she saw. 
Right? Wow. Well, that actually ties in with a lot of those stories that I talk about in the book. The you know the idea that the 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 image we have of the alien abduction is kind of like a, a cover um, for what's really going on. You know. Yeah, it's kind of. I, I don't do that anymore because I really didn't have uh, the emotional stamina to withstand many stories of that kind. You know, it was just, it was just really, it was horrifying, horrifying. Uh, Nick, with all the research you've done and thinking and writing about this topic, have you yourself ever had any kind of a paranormal experience or anything approximating such? Um. Uh, well, I've never had like a definitive UFO encounter or anything like that. But I tell you, one of the things I do get a lot of, I do get a lot of weird synchronicities happen. And I always tell people, you know, you should never ignore synchronicities, which for people who don't know, is sort of like a meaningful coincidence where something happens for a reason or you meet a person for a reason and et cetera, et cetera. And I think that the sort of, an intelligence or an energy out there that if we sort of call it, you know, whether consciously or subconsciously, it can it can respond. And I think synchronicities are tied in with that. And um, so I, I do get a lot of synchronicities, but I always try and act on them and or understand what the synchronicity means rather than ignore it. Uh, I think, you know, if something is doing this for a reason, then there's a reason why you should respond or, or try to figure out what it is. Nick, uh, another topic here. What do you think of these stories that people live underground? I'm thinking e an either-or scenario that's described of an actual subspecies of humanoids mm. that live under the surface of the planet and or some kind of civilizations of people, regular human well, I mean, there are, again, kind of like with the winged humanoids, you can go back um, throughout uh, human culture to the early years of civilization when there was a belief of not just like an underworld like a hell, but also the idea that on the earth itself there were sort of domains and realms where strange creatures would live and... Um, you know, I mean, you can go back to, if you look back at, say, England in the 1500s with fairy stories, you know, people today, when they think of fairies, they think of sort of Christmas card imagery of little sort of, you know, girls with wings flitting around Christmas trees. That's actually a, a very modern or fairly modern scenario of what a fairy would look like. Back sort of five, six hundred years ago, they were described as sort of very almost sort of potentially malevolent and menacing little dwarfish creatures, sort of one to three feet high, that could sometimes <coughs> be friendly, sometimes manipulative, sometimes downright deadly. And in a lot of the old English stories, the old Celtic stories, the fairies of that kind would live underground or in mounds, um, in hills that would have like extending tunnels and so on. And sometimes they would help people as I said and sometimes they would just sort of get their kicks by destroying people's lives and um, or just or just for the most part manipulate them is probably a better way and I mean so they had like an uneasy relationship with us and one of the theories is that this is kind of related to like almost like a, an inherited memory that we all have of times when possibly ancient man knew that 
more about these sort of underdwelling creatures than we do. But, um, I mean, I've investigated a few of these stories from, for example, Death Valley in California, where there are a number of stories of um, gold prospectors reportedly coming across ancient caves and caverns um, filled with what looks kind of like, I guess, their equivalent of something like an ancient Greek building or, or Egyptian building, um, the inference being that, you know, some sort of ancient civilization that lived in the U.S. long before even the Native Americans um, and that possibly lived underground. Uh, a friend of mine who unfortunately passed away a few years ago, Mac Tonis, he wrote a book on all this called The Crypto Terrestrials, um, which sort of updated, you know, to the modern era, this old theory of um, entities that could be sort of related to or sort of an offshoot, offshoot of the human race or, or something else entirely, but, you know, similar to the human race, living underground. And Mac actually wondered if aspects of the UFO phenomenon could actually be a terrestrial race living underground, but that presents itself as extraterrestrial so that we don't learn what it really is. And, you know, I mean, he had some interesting theories, the idea that maybe that would explain alien abductions, the idea that if aliens were coming here and they're from some faraway star system and so different to us, what would be the chances we would be genetically compatible for use in their experiments? But if we take the view that they're actually some sort of ancient offshoot of the human race living alongside us, albeit very stealthily, then arguably we would be extremely close genetically and that would make more sense from the genetic angle of abductions. If if, as Max suspected, they're like an evolutionary, on an evolutionary decline in the sense that, you know, their species is going downhill, and so they try and inject new blood. Well, if we're related to them, arguably we were the best thing to use. And you could also make a good case, as Mac did, that why do the aliens always ensure that they tell us they're aliens or they're from this star system? It's like they're overemphasizing it. Or maybe they actually are to just hide the fact that they're from not up there but down below. So it, it is what's an his, interesting theory. You know. What's his name again and the name of the book? Mac Tonis. Mac, we have it. Mac Tonis, T-O-N-N-I-E-S, and the book's called The Crypto Terrestrials. It's only a small book because unfortunately... We have it? How come I never saw it? Uh, it's up there. We have too <laughs> many. It's underground. There's so many books. <laughs> it's underground, yeah. Nick, <laughs> you're in your... In the case you documented, there is a, a frequent occurrence of uh, suspicious heart attacks. And you show that uh, mm. there are some uh, technologies based on microwave, radio waves, and even psychokinesis uh, mm. um, techniques that can induce uh, heart attacks and other disease, mm. fatal disease. Can you tell us more about uh, this topic? Yeah. Yeah, well, well, in the new book I've got, uh, close encounter of the fatal kind. I mean, there are all sorts of different deaths, but there are a number of deaths and significant and also suspiciously timed deaths within the UFO subject where people have had sudden out-of-the-blue heart attacks and died. And some of them have been, you know, in their mid-30s. For example, Captain Edward Ruppelt, who headed um, the Air Force's, U.S. Air Force's most famous UFO study program, Project Blue Book, he died at 36 after his second heart attack at a time when he was planning to reveal much more than he knew about the subject. He wrote a book called The Report on the Fly on Unidentified Flying Objects, 
Then he backed away from the subject and said, well, I think maybe I overemphasized and it's not really anything strange going on. But then just before his death, he was planning on coming out with something new. So he died suddenly at 36. There are other cases of people dying at young ages through heart disease um, that I talk about in the book. And I also talk about how files have surfaced through the Freedom of Information Act showing how directed microwave technology and also sound technology, acoustic technology, can actually have a, a very adverse and even fatal effect on the heart. For example, you know, if you've ever been at a concert and you've been near the speakers, you can feel that sort of throb in your chest. Um, or, you know, if you take a wine glass and spin your finger around a wine glass, you get the frequency right, you can shatter it. That's all done. That's just basically what's called acoustic technology. Acoustics are making that happen. And directed acoustic energy weapons actually, are, are, they're a reality. They can cause, at the very least, they can cause like nausea, dizziness, sickness, and there are plans, you know, where they could actually be used for crowd control. You just aim this weapon, the person doesn't actually hear anything other than like a, a hum, but they suddenly feel sick and they're just disabled and fall to their knees. But there are also experiments have been done, and again, this is through freedom of information files, we know this, that experiments have been undertaken with acoustic technology that can actually disrupt heart rhythms uh, to the point where it can actually stop your heart. Um, and, of course, if somebody wanted to use a weapon like that and kill someone, well, when they were autopsied, it would just show they had, like, an aberration with their heart. You know, there would mm -hmm. be no way to prove it was murder. It was just, it was just well, they're just one of those people, unfortunate, who died at 25 or 41 or whatever. You know, they died mm -hmm. early, but it was just natural. There would be no way to prove otherwise. Do you think they practice with this thing on random targets just to see how well it works? Um, I've never seen evidence of that. I, I'd be more inclined to think they probably probably would have tested it to start with on animals, you know. Um, well, there have been uh, an awful lot of young people that have been dying suddenly of heart attacks under yeah. suspicious circumstances yeah. that I've noticed in the, in the news in the past, oh, five, ten years. Well, one of the things, it's kind of interesting that, that idea of a technology, you know, that can be directed at a human being to cause heart attacks or cancer or different things, you know, because you give, you set examples in your, in your most recent book um, that where people who have had UFO encounters have had these experiences and then have had some subsequently died. And also some evidence that, um, as you just mentioned, that the kind of factions of the U.S. government slash military slash intelligence agencies uh, have been experimenting uh, with these and trying to find and have developed weapons that, that may well do this. And then there's another example um, where you cite that the Russians, in terms of their uh, experimentation into remote viewing, but there was one woman, uh, Nina, I can't remember her second name. Hulagina. <coughs> Nina Hulagina, yeah. Where she, uh, apart from remote viewing, they did a test and, and she was able to increase a doctor's heart rate to the point where uh, <laughs> they had to say, okay, let's stop now before you kill the guy. And so it's almost like there's a, there's a, a, a crossover there that essentially those three things may ultimately be similar in a sense that it, it's a natural human ability, albeit possessed only by very few people in very particular, uh, with very particular conditions or, or you know, genetic conditions. 
and then there's a technology that can be developed based on it that's supposedly a human technology, but that that technology may well have come from originally some kind of alien, uh, you know, association uh, with with our shadow government type people. Yeah, I think, you know, when you look at these files, this is one of the most disturbing things that the Russians, particularly in the 70s, were, were sort of way ahead of we were. And there were major concerns that the Russians were sort of using essentially what you would call psychic assassins or even psychics who could just create sort of fast-acting disease, you know, the, like a fast-acting cancer that would take the person out in six months and it would just look like, again, one of those unfortunate people that sometimes happens. You know, they get a diagnosis and they're dead in three months. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, the, the one you're talking about, um, this particular woman, Nina Kulagina, um, this actually talks in the official documents about how um, she essentially used psychic phenomena to speed up this doctor's heart to, to an incredible rate, uh, to where you know he was literally in danger and the operation had to be stopped. Now, of course, that was done within controlled circumstances. If it was done in the field, no one would even know possibly the woman was there. And, um, and, and mm. you know, when, when you find that there are so many suspicious deaths under these circumstances in the UFO field, and it seems to occur in, in some cases where the person was possibly on the verge of revealing something majorly significant, I, I think, you know, it's not just the event that you have to look at to see if it's suspicious. It's what the person was doing at that time, you know, the circumstances surrounding their work and research and so on. Yeah, uh, two people just talking about cancer, you know, kind of early onset cancer or cancer that acts very quickly. I'm thinking the person that comes to mind is Jack Ruby. Carla Turner. Yeah. And Carla Turner. Um, But also, in terms of induced heart attack, I've always had my suspicions about Robin Cook, uh, former uh, foreign minister. Remember him in the UK? Yeah. Uh, just, Just before he was out walking and... You know, they say he had a fall, but not really a big fall, but he had a massive heart attack. And he that was not long after uh, he had taken a stand against the Iraq war, against Blair, and was going to form a new party and do all sorts of things. To And he was a great orator, that guy as well. He could have, you know, swayed a lot of people, and then he suddenly dies while walking in the Scottish Highlands. Uh, but anyway, that's just my... Well, yeah, I think theorizing. this kind of ties in with some of the things, I think, like about a shadow government, where... You know, it's like if, I mean, I know a lot of people do think that was like a very suspicious death. You know, if you ask me, do I think Blair authorised it? No, I don't. What I think is that what could have happened is that, you know, these huge sort of multinational groups, again, like shadow type groups who have a vested interest in, they're sort of the real power brokers and the real manipulators of the planet. You know, we think this person or whatever is the prime minister or the president, they're just a figurehead, really. And so I wouldn't be surprised if, you know, these, some of these deaths, and with politicians, are more due to, like, a shadow group or a rogue offshoot of an intelligence agency rather mm-hmm. than the official agency itself. And that's why, again, I think, you know, it, it's hard to get the answers. Um, yeah. But, but I, I wouldn't be surprised if something like that could have happened. Speaking about foreign secretaries, have you ever come across anything... Um, to do with Secretary of State James Forrestal's brush with ufology, he had a he died under suspicious circumstances. Yeah, I actually got a chapter on him in the book. Okay. Um, 
Forrestal died on May the 22nd, 1949. Um, he plunged to his death from a, a 16th floor window of the Bethesda Naval Hospital in Maryland. And um, depending on who you ask, he committed suicide or he was shoved out the window. Um, those are really the only two options. But um, there are a lot of weird aspects to Forrestal's death. He was, he was the first U.S. Secretary of Defense. He, this was in 1947. Uh, prior to that, there actually wasn't a Secretary of Defense in the U.S. He was the very first one. And there are a lot of stories and rumors within the UFO field that after he became mm. Secretary of Defense, that Forrestal was briefed on the UFO subject and what was known about it at the time, which probably wouldn't have been much because you know, Roswell was only July 47. That was sort of early, you know, the start of it, in the modern era at least. And he was elected in September, so it was just like eight weeks after. But by all accounts, it had a very sort of traumatic effect on, on uh, Forrestal's character. He was somewhat, although he's a very brilliant strategist and somebody who in that sense was good for that particular job, he was also a very emotional man and had a lot of emotional highs and lows in his personal life as well with his wife. And for that reason, he may not have been the best person, you know, to have such a responsible job. But the story is that when he was told whatever the deep and dark secrets are about the UFO subject, over time it plunged him into like a state of stress and depression which built up and got worse and worse to the point where in 1940, early 49, he had like, a complete psychological collapse, a, a breakdown. And he was admitted to the Bethesda Naval Hospital. Um, and he was actually there for a couple of months. And by all accounts, um, after about three or four weeks, he was actually getting a lot better and responding to treatment. He was eating, showering, shaving, you know, looking after himself, in other words. He wasn't just sort of sitting in a corner, etc. Um, and he, 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 what happened was that his brother... Um, got sick and tired of the fact that every time he tried to visit the hospital and try and take his his brother home, take Forrestal home, somebody would come with a reason why, well, he's got to stay longer, and he's got to stay longer. And there were also rumours that, or there were fears, I should say, that when Forrestal got out, he was going to blow the whistle on everything he knew about the UFO subject, to the media, to the population, to the world. And so the story was that somebody was not going to allow that to happen. So the idea was just keep him in the hospital as long as possible, isolated, and we'll try and figure out what to do. Well, his brother, Henry, eventually just got sick of it and phoned the hospital on May the 21st, 1949, and said, look, I'm coming tomorrow morning, I'm taking him home, and you, know, you can do what you like. And um, so if somebody did want Forrestal gone, that would really be the only time would be after his brother phoned on the morning of the 21st and between the morning of the 22nd when he was going to come and take him home. And sure enough, that's when Forrestal died. He died in the early hours, like 2 a.m., I think it was, of, of May the 22nd, 1949. The official story is that he took the cord from his dressing gown, tied uh, one of it around his neck with a double knot, then tied the other end of the cord with a double knot around the radiator, then climbed out the window and lowered himself out. Now, that's, that's not... And then the, the idea was he was supposed to have let him... He wanted to strangle himself, but the weight of his body snapped the cord and he fell to a 13th floor um, canopy that was sticking out. Um, now, that's not an impossible scenario, 
But if you think about it, you know, he's just an average built guy. If you take a, the cord off a dressing gown and loop it around your neck and tie it twice, and then you loop the other end around a radiator and, and knot it twice, would there even be enough cord left to actually climb out of a window and then mm-hmm. lower yourself down the other side? You know, it's not like he had a 60-inch waist or something, you know. <laughs> yeah. Um, so there are a lot of weird aspects to his death, the timing, the nature of his death. And what was weird is that throughout the entire time he was there, he had a guard watching him. Um, he actually died on the one night, the literally the only night, where for a, um, something like 10 minutes, one of the guards was relieved and the other one wasn't brought in. And so if somebody wanted to get mm. rid of him, that would have been the ideal time when no one was around and, and try and make it look like a suicide. And um, so, yes, yeah, so even to, I think it's kind of like the Kennedy assassination that we'll never really know. I mean, Forrestal's death was 65 years ago, uh, you know, a long time. And, uh, and, you know, I'm sure nothing, even if somebody wanted him gone, they're not going to be so stupid enough as to put it in writing and say, you know, please send agent so-and-so to the hospital and kill Forrest, you know, that's not going to be, no one's going to write a memo saying that, it's all going to be word of mouth. So, um, you know, the the more time that goes by, I think the harder and harder it's going to be to sort of resolve anything, really. Well, that's just way too many coincidences for me, I can tell you that. Yeah, exactly. You've uh, uh, talked a little bit about people being driven crazy, you know, actually being driven uh, yeah. To kill themselves. What do you know anything about the Paul Benowitz case? Yeah, well, Paul Benowitz was a guy who very tragic story. It almost ended in in death for him. But um, Paul Benowitz was someone who, um, in the late 1970s, he developed an interest in the UFO subject. Oh, excuse me, I should say he had a long-going interest in the UFO subject, but he developed an interest in um, strange goings-on in uh, one particular part of New Mexico on the fringes of Albuquerque. And what happened was that at the time, Benowitz, who was a scientist, he was doing contract work for the U.S. Air Force, and Benowitz's company, uh, which was called Thunder uh, Laboratories, The building actually backed onto the um, the fence line of Kirtland Air Force Base, who were contracting him. And because he worked so close to the base at night, because his home was only five minutes away as well, he started to see these strange objects in the sky, um, which, for want of a better term, he called UFOs. And um, he would see these strange lights beaming down to the ground. He began to hear about abduction stories in the area. And what he did, he did something sort of pretty unique. And maybe this had, it was connected to the fact that he was doing contract work for the Air Force. But he actually approached the Air Force and said words to the effect of, I think you've got UFOs flying over your base. And I'm hearing stories about people being abducted in the area and taken to underground bases and examined and experimented on. And the Air Force didn't ignore it. They actually took his story very seriously they sent people around to interview him and to see what he was looking into. And some researchers have suggested that this was because there was a fear that Benowitz had stumbled upon a genuine uh, classified matter affecting national security. And so they, the story is that they sort of approached him on a friendly basis to try and figure out if he was a threat to national security and how much he knew. 
Well, the story is that whatever the secret was, he knew quite a lot. And so then the somebody within the intelligence world reportedly came up with an idea, well, why don't we just bombard him with the most nightmarish stories we can come up with that actually sort of vindicates even more what he believes is going on, but we'll just amp it up to the point where he's going to be so stressed out and, you know, filled with nightmares and paranoia that he'll just become overwhelmed by it. And that's exactly what happened, was that he would have these sort of clandestine meetings with intelligence agents who he thought were sort of helping him and passing information on. But they were just feeding him stories that made him psychologically even worse. And he became so paranoid, you know, he felt people were breaking into his home and injecting him with chemicals, which, who knows, maybe they were. Um, but he eventually had to be hospitalised for like psychological stress and just complete exhaustion. And, and he walked away from the subject, but... Even though there are different theories as to why this was done, everybody agrees that he was targeted and um, essentially put through the, the mill, so to speak, because of of the fact that he got too close to something and and they decided that, you know, mental disintegration was the only way to get him to stop. Whatever happened to him? Is he still around? No, he died, actually died about 2000 and. One two thousand and two. When it, when all this was going on was sort of about nineteen seventy nine through about nineteen eighty seven, and after that time he didn't. He sort of kept a low. Well, he had a total breakdown, but after that he kept a low profile for a couple of years. But then just totally dropped out of the subject. He was sort of like done with it, and um, so for the last ten years of his life he, he wasn't really even involved unless people contacted him, and you know he would hang out with a few friends and confidence who who he was comfortable with, but, but his days as sort of somebody actively investigating, it was sort of long gone by by the time of, of when he had this sort of psychological collapse. i tell you what, Nick, for somebody who didn't do too well in school, you're a damned encyclopedia. I swear. I have never heard such great stories in my life. You should you check know, out his Amazon page. You've got like 30 books published or something. Yeah, I've done, about, I've done about 30 altogether, and um, there are some books, you, actually, where my name's listed, where yeah. I actually am not an author on them. I mean, some, there's a book on, on there, it's called Mind Control Sex Slaves of the CIA, and it's, it's got me as a co-author, I'm not, I'm not a co-author of that book. <laughs> what it is, um, the author reproduced uh, a copy of an article I wrote somewhere online, and it's inserted mm. in the book. So that's why technically I'm presented as a a co-author of a book called Mind Control Sex Lives of the CIA, which I'm nothing of a sort, really. I'm just just amazed. I mean, your your memory for detail is just absolutely astonishing. Absolutely. I mean, I'm... It's it's a real asset in this kind of field. Sometimes it can be a curse when when your brain's sort of swarming around with too much, you know. That's why I like to be able to take a... You know, to, to have a normal life away from it as well. So. Yeah, geez, you need it. <laughs> yeah, well, when do you get time for a normal life? I mean, oh, well, always... you know, I actually, I actually plan it quite easy. What I do, I, I get up in the morning, like 6.30, blog and whatever for like an hour and a half and do Facebook stuff. And then I, I write, if I'm writing books or magazine articles, I do 8 to 5, Monday to Friday, then, unless I'm on a real deadline, that's where I stop. I do 8 to 5, Monday to Friday. Then that gives me every evening off, 
and unless like today, like I'm doing a radio show, I have, you know, I don't work weekends, you know, I'll just do normal stuff as, you know, mm-hmm. as everybody else does. Um, you yeah. know, go and watch a football game, go down to the pub, whatever. Um, mm-hmm. And I, I like to keep that balance between the two because I think otherwise there is a danger you can just get totally burned out if it, yeah. if it becomes like a 24-7 thing. And that's why I like to keep... It's not a job in the sense I consider it a job. It's a passion. You've got to be passionate about it. But I do mm-hmm. feel for me it's important to be able to to be able to switch off and and just do, you know, normal stuff. Uh, yeah. What I consider normal stuff. So. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, well, well this, listen, this has been absolutely yeah, terrific. I've really, really enjoyed it. And I really... Uh, I really enjoyed this book, uh, Close Encounters oh, of the you. Fatal Kind, because, uh, I mean, it just put a lot of pieces together yeah. that had been floating around in my head for a long time that I had not put together. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and Nick, we don't want to take oh, up any you. more of your of your Sunday oh, no, free, free time. <laughs> uh, <we're laughs> no, no, I didn't mean it like that. I'm happy to do no, the no, show. No, I, I no, just I, meant... I just meant I like to, you know, when I, I sort of, I'm, I'm good at being able to switch off. That's all I meant. Yeah, <laughs> no, I'm absolutely. fine doing well, the show. We're, get, we're getting uh, close to the end of our, our slot anyway. So, but uh, I just want to thank you for, for being on and for all the kind of work you've done. That's oh, yeah, great. Sure. I'm happy to do it. I mean, I enjoy doing radio. And I think, not just do I enjoy, enjoy it, but I think it's good to get information out to people. And, you yeah. know, like, it's like we all have our own roles, whether somebody's got a radio show somebody's an author, somebody's a blogger, somebody's got a TV show, or somebody's a mm. witness who comes forward. I, th- I look that we're all kind of on the same level, we've all, but we've all got our own different strands as to how we can contribute one way or the other, you know. Mm. Absolutely. Well, I'm going to be doing some reading, so thank you for <laughs> some of the clues and hints. And, yeah. and, uh, and just to our listeners, they, you know, check, check out Nick on, on Amazon, check out his books on Amazon and his blog. Uh, and he's, you're on Facebook too, so updating people. Yeah, people. There's, there's something like nine or ten Nick Redferns on Facebook, but uh, scroll there's down. There's only one real one. Yeah. <laughs> All right, Nick. Thanks again. Thanks so much. Thank you. All right, Thank thanks, you. Guys. Bye. Thanks a lot. Have a good one. Bye bye. You too. Bye-bye. See you later. All right, folks, uh, I think we'll call it call it a day there on that one. Um, next week, <clears throat> we are coming back down to earth um, and changing to a more political kind of topic, which is, uh, <clears throat> you know, in the headlines right now, which is Israel. It's an interview with Lauren Booth. Uh, Lauren Booth is a, an English broadcaster, journalist, and pro-Palestinian activist, but she's probably more famous for being the sister of Tony Blair's wife, Cherie Blair. So we're going to be talking to her uh, about all things Israel, Palestine, and everything that's been going on over the past week. Uh, and it's maybe, you know, that topic is maybe not unrelated to this topic that was just discussed today in a sort of strange, kind of weird way, but I'm not Sure, we'll be talking to Lauren about that. But anyway, <laughs> tune don't in, miss it. First tune question. in anyway for for the skinny on on Israel Palestine and uh, yeah. So thanks to our listeners, thanks to our chatters, and anybody else who was doing anything. And thanks to Nick again, and thanks to Laura. And good night, Neil everyone. and Joe and Pierre. Thanks to everybody. Have a good one. Bye bye.